Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, I ask now that you take the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart and make them wholly yours. Ask that you continue building your kingdom in us and through us, helping us recognize all the great things you've already done and knowing that greater things have yet to come. So keep us yoked to you and growing together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been joining us online the past four weeks, then you know this is week five or the final week of Mission Insight 201. And because there's a 201 means that somewhere along the way there was a 101. And if you missed 101, well, tough. This is Paul's second mission to the ends of the earth. And it features Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke. And just a quick reminder that the question that's guiding our sermon series is simply this. What insights about Paul's second missionary journey can be identified and applied to our present mission at Christ Community and also in our lives as we're out in the world doing what God has called us to do and where he's called us to be? So a super quick recap, and I mean super quick recap. I'm not going to give you every insight, just a couple from each week. Sermon 1 was entitled Restructure and Revision. Paul's second missionary uh, began by restructuring his mission team and seeing the vision for God's next yes. Two insights from that week are this. Disagreements happen, but disagreements do not have to end the mission. And that's an important one. And the second insight I'd like to say from that week is restructuring for a new mission often requires a new team. The second sermon in our series was Philippi, part one. The first assessment I would share with you from that week are assessment periods are vital to discerning where and when to launch a ministry or a mission. And the other one I would share from that week is evil uses prejudice and deception in order to stir up anger And cause harm. Our third sermon was Philippi part two. That's right, sermon three for part two. Insight the Lord will comfort you in every situation when you access his grace. The second insight is this the love of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit is the great equalizer in all human relationships. And broken systems. Last week we did Sermon 4, Thessalonica and Berea with just a little dash of Athens for good measure. How do we share the one who is truth when others only know some of the truth? Begin with the truth others know. And that was a unifying insight from all three locations. Begin with the truth that others know. As Christians, we know that there is an absolute truth, and this truth is found in a person, Jesus Christ. Okay? So when we hear someone say something like, my truth, what they're really saying is, this is the truth as I understand it. So we affirm the truth that others know, Then we present Jesus, the one who is 
truth. Now, before I go on, I would just like to say that throughout this series, the, the song from the musical Grease, Grease Lightning, kept coming to my mind. Okay, because after all, Paul is in Greece, right? That's right. That's right. Paul is in Greece. Now, as I have worked on this song, it, I, I have to say to you, it is not yet complete in all of its glory. And sadly, my children are not here right now to embarrass. Um, but I will say, and Liz, this is important that you hear, that when and if I get this finished, it's going to require more than just me. Okay? Because I'm going to need pips to go along with it. Yeah. So that when I sing things like, they sailed from Tros and they landed in Neapolis. Greece mission, pause. No, thank you. That's it. Pause, second mission. Uh-huh. <laughs> they walked 10 miles on the Via Ignatia. Greece mission, pause, second. And then they stopped in Philippi for Greece mission. Go, 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 go. So I'm going to need a whole band for that, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. There's something in here about converting Lydia and a fortune-telling slave girl. And, um, oh, the, uh, the slave owners brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates. Mm. They stripped them and they beat them and they threw them in the dungeon. Um, oh, gosh, there's all sorts of good stuff here. But I just can't, And I tell you, the other thing is I'd really like to have my own words memorized so I can do things like this. Okay? So I just want you to tuck that in the back of your brain housing group so that you can have something to really look forward to. And since you're all here today, I'm going to preach for about an hour. Are you good with that? Great. All right, here's today's sermon, y'all, and the last sermon of this series from Paul's Greece mission. Corinth. Corinth was the largest city in Greece and the Greek center for east-west trade at the time. It was a major maritime center that united the Adriatic and Aegean seas. Now, just, just hear this. Some of the most undesirable elements that often plague a maritime center, you know, a port, well, those were present in Corinth. According to the New American Commentary, among the Greeks, okay, among the Greeks, the Gentiles, the word translated to live like a Corinthian meant to live immorally. Right? Any kind of debauchery, sinful act or behavior you could find in Corinth. Like, it make Las Vegas look like a healthy place to live. In other words, Corinth was everything you'd want in a mission site. Lots of people, lots of brokenness, and lots of opportunity to love them like Jesus loves them. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, you should know about, um, about Priscilla uh, and Aquila. Uh, Paul mentions them in several letters, including Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Timothy. But I want you to notice here how quickly Paul is able to connect with them. I want you to also notice that Paul does not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Why? He's on a mission trip. Why? Right. I mean, he's on a mission trip, so isn't his job to share the gospel with those he comes in contact with? So why didn't he share it with them? Because they were already believers. 
They were already believers. You see, Emperor Claudius had all of the Jews ejected from Rome over the civil unrest that took place within the Jewish community. Now, the unrest within the Jewish community in Rome centered upon the teaching of somebody known as Crestus, also translated as Christus. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ had already reached Rome ahead of Paul desiring to go on mission there, and Aquila and Priscilla were proof of the Holy Spirit's work to the ends of the earth. Now, I share all of this with you so I can share this one insight. God creates community for his people. God creates community for his people because he knows we need community. We need fellowship. Life is hard enough out in the real world or the broken world. We need fellowship with those who know Jesus so that it can sustain us in our work out there. It was God's providence that Aquila and Priscilla wound up in Corinth. What Caesar intended for evil, God used for good. Isn't that God's way? God never causes evil. Evil simply is. But God always uses every circumstance for good for those who love him and live according to his purpose. The Christian couple was newly established in Corinth before Paul arrived. They gave Paul a place to stay and work, and they all shared the same trade together. The three initially provided Christian fellowship for each other, but God would add a great many more to the fellowship before Paul finished in Corinth 18 months later. God creates community for his people. Well, as the lesson goes on, it says, Every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, when Paul got there, and he didn't have anything set up yet except a place to stay with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, sounds like something from the Jungle Book, doesn't it? Right, I keep saying it, and I keep seeing Malga. Okay, anyway. Um. Man, isn't it amazing how quickly you can rabbit trail off the... Sorry, y'all. So he arrives there. He he has these two, but he's got to work. He's got to work. Now, you should know, and this leads us to the second insight, bivocational pastoral ministry is sometimes necessary. But the goal should always be for a pastor to devote his or her entire work to the ministry. And I've heard more than one parishioner in more than one congregation say to me, why don't you get a real job? Why don't you get a real job? Pastoring's not that hard. You just get up and talk for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Every church I've ever served. Every church I've ever served. And it's usually said with a smile, you know, like Southerners when they say, oh, bless your heart. Yeah. You turn around, there's a big knife sticking out of your back. Sometimes it's necessary for pastors to be bivocational. Some of you know Eric Hoke. He's a bivocational pastor in Bronx, right? He's bivocational because he's planting a church. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure the goal will be for him not to always be bivocational, but for the first several years, 
He's got to be that way. And sometimes churches are so small that the pastor has to be bivocational. Nothing wrong with that. But the ultimate goal is for the pastor to devote his or her, all of her working, his or her working life to ministry. In fact, in our own United Methodist Book of Discipline, pastors are not permitted to have any other jobs. If you are a full-time pastor, you are not permitted to do any other kind of work. So, bivocational and pastoral ministry is sometimes necessary, but the goal should always be for a pastor to devote his or her entire work to the ministry. And so when, when um, Timothy uh, and, and crew got there, Silas and Timothy, they got there, they kind of took over, uh, things were established, and Paul was off and running. He didn't have to worry about this other stuff. He only focused on this ministry of planting the Corinthian church. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes and protested to them. Your blood be on your own hands. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul did. He left that synagogue. He went next door to somebody else's house. He ended up saving more people. And here's the insight. Y'all listen. There are too many people in the world to waste your time on those who have clearly said no to the gospel. Doesn't that sound like I have no compassion at all? There are too many people in the world to waste your time on those who have clearly said no to the gospel. Listen, Jesus never promised us positive results. He never promised us positive results. He promised us persecution if we're doing it right. He never promised positive results. How many times did Paul have to run for his life from a town because he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and offended a whole bunch of people? By the way, just because someone may say no to us doesn't mean they won't say yes to God later. Consider Crispus, who was the synagogue ruler and who came to believe in Jesus after Paul left the synagogue and went next door. Look, if somebody says, nope, not interested, Lord bless you and keep you, and you keep moving on. Okay? Not your job to save, is it? Just your job to share. Well, a little bit of time passes, and Luke writes, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, there go on to be more conflict, because there's always conflict wherever Paul goes. You notice that? Always. But he would end up being successful there in Corinth and he'd be a year and a half. And that essentially ends Paul's second missionary journey. And the insight we can walk away with from that is this. God is bigger than fear. And so is his mission for us. God is bigger than fear. God is bigger than the boogeyman. Bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the 
cooking man, and he's watching enough for you and me. No. No veggie tails here? Come on. Okay, thank you. God is bigger than fear. And his mission for us is bigger than our fear. We are human, of course. There are going to be times when we get scared, right? I mean, to not be afraid when we're facing potential danger or even the unknown, that's simply impossible. But when we walk with Jesus, when we remember that he is with us, he can make the impossible possible. He's not saying, don't be afraid. You are naturally, physiologically going to respond sometimes in fear. What he's saying is overcome fear with me. For I am with you. For I am with you. God is with us. Paul would later write to the churches that he founded on his second missionary journey, encouraging each of them that no matter what they are facing, God is with them. Paul wrote to the Philippians who were fearing persecution, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Rejoice. God is with you in Philippi, Paul wrote. Do not be afraid of persecution. God's peace will prevail in your soul. God is near. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who were fearing death. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Be encouraged, Thessalonica. God will raise you up. Do not be afraid of death, Thessalonica, because God will raise up all the faithful when Christ returns. Do not be afraid, Thessalonica. God's going to host an eternal family reunion. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a lot because they were a hot mess. They were a hot mess. The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. God is with you in Corinth to help unite you, Corinth. Please let God unite you so you can be one in Corinth, Corinth. All right, Corinth, come on now. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not like evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. God is with you in Corinth to love you and help you love each other in Corinth. Do not be afraid to love each other in Corinth. God is with you in Corinth to give you victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid in Corinth. Trust in Jesus, and He will give you victory. Victory in your living and victory in your dying. The Lord is near. Best of all, God is with us. If there be but one insight for the whole series, it would be the final insight I'll offer you, and it's this. Paul's second missionary journey, his letters like Corinthians and Philippians and Thessalonians that comprise so much of the New Testament and Christianity around the world would have never happened had the Jerusalem Council not decided that God's grace was bigger and more important than their rules and their traditions. And that means that none of us would be here today. And so my parting question for you, both as individuals and we together as a congregation is this one question. What rules and traditions do we have that are prohibiting others from accepting the grace of Jesus Christ? And that's not God's word seriously considered this day for the Church of Christ community. For all them other churches that came before us, like the hot mess of Corinth, the insecure of Thessalonica, and people in Philippi, and, and all the rest. All thanks and praise be to the God that loves us just like we are and takes us where he wants us to be. Amen. Hey, thanks for checking out the So What Factor. My name's Randy Bennett. I'm a United Methodist pastor. And these sermons answer the question, I hope, so what? So what? Is God real? So what am I supposed to do with my life? So what does the Bible actually say? So in every sermon, it's my hope that you'll figure out what the so what is. But if you don't know, or it wasn't clear, feel free to find me on Facebook at Randy Bennett Jr. Um, and shoot me a message. You can also email me at PastorRandyBennett at Yahoo.com. Be happy to hear your questions. And, and, uh, and connect with you. So thanks for listening. Take care and God bless.